I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I am Paige, your caffeine-imbued host. Here's my caffeine. In the beginning, coffee, low. It was very good. Well, today we're going to continue our jaunt through chapter 2. We're going to go verses 3 through 10. So without any further ado, let's just launch ourselves right on into this thing. Uh, I've got Galatians to thank for a couple of things. First of all, it's opening my eyes up on the dynamic of the early church leadership. Uh, currently, I'm beginning to see that there were basically two parties in the early church, the Peter, James, and John party and the Paul party. Or think of it as the Jerusalem church and the Gentile church. They didn't know it then, but within several decades, Rome would destroy Jerusalem and his temple and there would be no Jerusalem church. In preparation for this, the church needed to be able to work and exist in the Gentile world because in a couple decades, they wouldn't have a choice. And Paul was the man chosen by God to accomplish this. But for now, both existed. And there was an uneasy tension between Paul and the Jerusalem church leadership, as we're going to see later in this letter. A little review. Paul is talking to the Galatians in this letter, who are in the process of being bewitched by false teachers who want them to adopt Mosaic law, becoming Torah observant, circumcision, sacrifices the bit, even though they're Gentiles. And he's explained to the Galatians that he's met these people before. And he tells a story in this first chapter of how he went to Jerusalem to combat them in front of the church leadership, Peter, James, and John. Now, this is Paul's first major meeting with the big three, James, Peter, and John. He's arrived in Jerusalem, and the false believers have made their argument. And he picks up the narrative in verse 3 where he says, Not even Titus, who's with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, this is important, especially to the Galatians. He says, basically, Titus is one of you, a Greek. And even he wasn't convinced to be circumcised by these people. He goes on in verse 4 to say, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Paul doesn't even consider these people believers with whom he has an intellectual doctrinal disagreement. In Paul's view, they're not even in the family of God. He says in verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
And then he says something really, really curious in verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. He's talking about the other apostles. Am I alone in, in thinking that this is a little snarky? Let's read that again. As for those who were held in high esteem, that's Peter, James, and John, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. It appears to me that there was an issue between Paul. There's tension at the very least between Paul and the other apostles. Maybe they didn't consider Paul was a true apostle, or maybe they were having trouble accepting him as a true apostle. Maybe they thought him of him as a Johnny-come-lately. Maybe they were having trouble accepting the fact that this movement in the Gentile world, which Peter foresaw, has been taken over by this former Pharisee. Then Paul says, they added nothing to my message because message, Paul's message was complete. Hmm. And he goes on to say, on the contrary, they recognized that I have been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter has been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. In effect, Paul saying, they recognized my work and that what I was doing was legitimate. Now, in my thinking, the phrase, they recognized my work, that implies a change of mind, perhaps, by the Twelve. Perhaps they doubted it before Paul and they met. To me, it gives the impression that they had to be convinced about Paul, which means when Paul arrived, they were not convinced. They were on the other side of the fence, perhaps, and but most importantly, they changed their mind about Paul. At first, they were skeptical and uncertain. But later, they came to stand with Paul on the issue of circumcision. In verse 9, he says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars. That's another snarky comment. He's not sure they're pillars. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, esteemed as pillars, excuse me, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. The Jerusalem leadership saw Paul, they heard Paul, and they saw that God was with Paul. In essence, Paul is saying, they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So even with the tension, it looks like they worked through it. But Paul was not overwhelmed by Peter, James, and John. And I'm not sure Peter, James, and John were overwhelmed with Paul. But it looks like they worked through it. And now, at this point in history, there was still Jerusalem. There was still the temple. There was still a very large group of Jewish believers that Peter, James, and John were working amongst. This is going to change around A.D. 70, when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and scattered everybody. But at this point in time, there were basically two movements happening among the Jews in Jerusalem and amongst the Gentiles. 
Now, based on what Paul wrote in verses 2, 6, and 9, I get the sense that Paul was not initially impressed with the Jerusalem leadership. To me, it feels like in the beginning of the Jerusalem conference, the Jerusalem leadership were not solidly in Paul's camp. And Paul sensed that, writing as he did. The picture I get is that the apostles of Jerusalem were wavering on the issue of whether or not the Gentiles should be Torah observant, tending to advise, advise compliance to the law. I can't help but wonder, were these apostles bullied by the very learned and intellectual Pharisees? Someone who is brilliant with bad intent is a dangerous foe. And these Pharisees were very perhaps intellectually superior to Peter, James, and John. The apostles were blue-collar guys. They were fishermen. They weren't stupid. They weren't dumb. But they'd be no match in a debate or an argument with an intellectual foe that comes out of the discipline of Pharisaism. That was a very, very disciplined religious mindset. But it's a good thing Paul was there because of all the apostles. It's turning out that this Pharisee, Paul, was the only one intellectually qualified to push back on these enemies of the first century church. You can see God's wisdom in selecting Paul now. Paul was the champion of the Gentiles, but he was also the immovable force that the religious mindset of Judaism banged up against. Paul was not to be underestimated. Paul was the church's greatest asset in this regard. I wonder what happened when these Judaizers went back to whoever sent them on their mission, defeated. I wonder if this is where the schism began that would eventually lead to the realization that this movement, soon to be called Christianity, could not be a part of Judaism, but was in fact a different thing altogether. See that, in the beginning, there was a lot of effort to try to make this a sect within Judaism. Rome even thought followers of Jesus, that this was a sect within Judaism and gave them protection for a time. And I'm wondering if believers who came out of Pharisaism or Sadducees or, or out of the priesthood, I'm wondering if they wanted to make this part of Judaism. But when it became evident that they were not going to be part of Judaism. I'm wondering if this is where it began, all of that began. When Paul handily defeated these Pharisees that tried to place Gentile believers under the law. Just a thought. It's me thinking with my mouth open. Moreover, uh, what fits in as being most clear in this passage that the conflict is primarily between the false brothers and Paul, and that in the end, with or without wavering by the Jerusalem leadership, the apostles stood solidly with Paul and Barnabas. It also occurs to me that even though everything worked in Paul's favor, as far as Paul was concerned, the other apostles did not perform well in this crisis. Hmm. In this meeting in Jerusalem, Paul was a centerpiece. 
Paul was the one who took charge. He decisively separated the gospel and policies of the 12 for all their weaknesses from the gospel and policies of the legalizers. And finally, Paul has taken note of the fact that he and the 12, rather than the legalizers and the 12, stood together. Galatians have to know this, that these people that are bewitching them are on the losing side. They don't have a good argument. Their gospel is false. They are false. And Paul and the leadership in Jerusalem stand together. Paul's trying to get through to the Galatians. These people that are bewitching them are not as important as they think they are. They're not as powerful as they think they are. And more importantly, they are not right in what they teach. Paul faced them down in front of the 12, in front of the Jerusalem leadership, and they were soundly defeated. Jerusalem conference had two results. On the one side, nothing new was added to Paul's message. The 12 added nothing to Paul's message. They had nothing to add to what he was saying, nothing to add to what he was doing. His gospel was complete because it was received by revelation from Jesus himself. On another side, these pillars of the church in Jerusalem recognized that all of them had been entrusted with the same gospel. And this outsider, Paul, had also been given the same gospel. It didn't come from them, but it came to him the way it came to them through Jesus himself. And they realized that they only differed in respect to the different fields they'd been assigned to preach that gospel in. The first Jerusalem council was a pretty big deal. And it cemented Paul's leadership in this first century church moving forward. The church was moving into the Gentile world, of which the church and Galatians were a part. And Paul is the central leader in that movement. Now, the thought comes to me how emotionally difficult it might have been. And this is me thinking with my mouth open again. So forgive me if that bothers you, but it's my podcast. I get to do this. The thought comes to me how emotionally difficult it might have been for Peter, James, and John to acknowledge the fact in later years that though they were the original companions of Jesus, and though it was Peter who received the vision about bringing Gentiles into the church, that Jesus chose a Pharisee who would champion the Gentiles' inclusion, who would lay the foundation for the future of the church, who would write over half of the New Testament, in many ways superseding them. Paul, the apostle, a Pharisee, becomes preeminent. Just another random thought as I think with my mouth open. In my life as a musician, I had dreams of grandeur. I, I, I'm good at what I do. Uh, I've been in great bands. I've traveled overseas. I got to play in Russia on a small tour with a, with a show band. Um, I was in the Navy show band that traveled up and down the West Coast. Um, I played in big venues, small venues, big churches, small churches. Um, I'm good at what I do. And for a while... It was my dream to become a worship leader in a good big church. There's some glory in that. I ain't going to lie. But I always got passed up, and other people always got that gig. And for a while, it used to bother me. But you know, 
If you believe in the sovereignty of God, as I do, that all things work together for the good for those who are his called out ones, then whether or not I get the big gig, whether or not someone walks right past me into the limelight, like Paul did with these guys, Peter, James, and John, it doesn't matter in the end. If you take an eternal perspective, what matters most is being faithful to do what you are called to do. And if glory comes with it, glory comes. If no glory comes with it, then no glory comes. It matters not. Have you ever said something off the cuff and while you're saying it, you're going, oh, I hope somebody's taking notes because this is really good. It happened to me once. Somebody asked me, did I mind not becoming famous? Did I mind not being part of a, uh, a big name band or group? And I said, you know, I think I would rather go to my grave anonymous with nobody knowing my name and hear well done and good and faithful servant when I stand before the Lord than to go to my grave with the whole world shouting my name only to stand in front of God and hear him say, Paige who? I don't know you. Anonymity wears, wears well on me, I think. I like it. I'm good with it. All right, well, that's a good place for this to stop. I'm Paige. Here's my caffeine again. In the beginning coffee, low, it was still very good. Have a great day. Bye-bye. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at page, that's P-A-I-G-E, at coffeebiblepage.com.